0: 59797. Bush lines and information lines can be heard weekdays at 8 59 a.m. and 1 in 7 p.m., and on weekends at 10 a.m. and 1 in 7 p.m. To add or move anything, call 907 235 7721, extension 229. You are listening to KBBI Homer, AM 890. It's just after 9 a.m. Stay tuned for the coffee table coming up next.
1: Well, good morning. You're tuned in to KBBI Homer AM 890. The time is 9.03. I'm Josh Krohn. I'll be your host for the coffee table this morning. Apologies for the technical snafu. The computer system whipped into shape here a little later. I have with me in the studio Liz Maring from Cook Inlet Keeper. Good morning, Liz. Good morning. And we're here to talk about uh, wetlands, the Clean Water Act, and uh, many things Cook Inlet Keeper. So um, I want to just talk a little bit first. I want to talk to, to uh, you, Liz, about how uh, you wound up at Cook Inlet Keeper. Cook Inlet Keeper has been around for, oh gosh, going on around 30 years at this point and um, uh, has had a, a mission for uh, uh, oversight over environmental concerns in our areas came out of the oil spill um, and uh, has moved into a lot of different areas since then. But why don't you go ahead and tell me a little bit about uh, your history and how you wound up here? And uh, before we do, uh, let me just go ahead and remind our listeners that we are taking calls this morning. If you have any questions for us, you can give us a call 907-235-7721. You can also email me Josh at kbvi.org, and I will be happy to read your question on the air. Uh, so. So Liz, go ahead, tell me a little bit about how you wound up with Cook Inlet Keeper.
2: That always seems like such a big question, but um, I am a wildlife biologist and an environmental lawyer by trade, and so I saw the job posting last year and was thrilled to be joining Cook Inlet Keeper's um, staff, As and currently I'm the advocacy director and the inlet keeper at Cook Inlet Keeper. Um, After Bob retired this fall, I stepped into that role um, and have been loving it ever since, working on all of the issues that Cook and Lick Keeper and so much of the community down here in Homer and on the whole peninsula find so important.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, how how does your, uh, how did your school uh, uh, get you to this point? How did you wind up in Alaska?
2: So I got out of law school in Oh, gosh, 2016, and came actually my first job out of law school was up in Alaska. I started in Fairbanks, and I have been saying I'm moving down the road. So I spent a winter in Fairbanks, got experienced the real Alaska with the negative 40, and then moved to Anchorage for a few years, and I'm thrilled to have landed in Homer um, in this wonderful place um, with such a great community and love my daily walks on the beach with my dogs.
1: (laughs) Fairly amazing around here. Like to keep it our own, our own little secret. <laughs> um, so uh, let's talk about Cook Inlet Keeper and the uh, the mission uh, of the organization. Um, just go ahead and tell me like what where we're going these days.
2: Yeah, um, and Cook Inlet Keeper is very much a community based organization. So very much concerned about the community concerns for our waters and our lands and our fish. Um, and so. We've been around a very long time, um, as you were saying, so 20 some years, 26 or seven years. I've lost track again. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, as you were saying, started after the Exxon Valdez oil spill when there were a lot of concerns about clean water and making sure that it's protected and just trying to continue that mission and making sure our clean waters and our citizens and our communities have a voice in in where we live and making sure we're protecting what we love and where we live.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, some of the actions, there's been some, uh, uh, some successes, some not so much successes with Cook Inlet Keeper. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, some of the things that the, the, uh, you've succeeded with?
2: So yeah, there's been a lot of projects, and as I said, I started last July, so I um, am relatively new, but um, yeah, there's been a lot of huge projects involved in. So, you know, Cook Inlet Keeper was involved in the Chuchu, Chuchu, sorry, the Chuitna Mine project up um, across the way. And obviously, that was a success, protecting those salmon streams um, from that project and from coal mining, which is certainly a concern for all of us that are worried about climate change. And so that was a huge success. Um, but also, I think successes in just continuing to make sure that the industry is not leaking oil and gas um, into Cook Inlet. And so some of the reports that were done maybe 10 or 15 years ago now, really exposing some of the you know, consistent leaks and those types of things and making sure that the public knows about those things so that we can stand up and say, wait, these are the waters we fish in. We don't want that to happen. And the industry makes plenty of money to that they should be responsible for making sure that doesn't happen. For so, sure.
1: Um, uh, can you give me some examples of some of the, uh, the well, you said leaks that, uh, that have been cleaned up? Is that like the, uh, the methane leak in Cook Inlet from the Hillcorp platform? Uh, anything else is like uh, tank, tank leaks at Redoubt or anything like that?
2: Yeah, and so mostly it's watching some of, you know, some of the leaks and just kind of speaking up to it. Um, there had been a lot of work done. At, again, a number of years ago, there's some reports that had come out that really showed the history of leaks. And in, in some ways, we with new operators and with Hillcorp, I think some of those lessons have been lost, and we're watching very closely on those leaks because we see a lot more leaks again from um, Hillcorp, with, especially with our aging infrastructure and making sure that our government is watching the industry and making sure Hillcorp is living up to the standards and the requirements of our state um, laws.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about wetlands because that's actually why we're here this morning. So let's, uh, let's first go ahead and cover about what, first what is a wetland? What do we know about them?
2: So wetlands are um, an ecosystem that provide a ton of um, incredible ecological functions to to our planet and to us. And so economic value um, and high quality of life here. And so you think about wetlands, and it it's one of those things, it's like, <laughs> I feel like it's one of those things you almost know it when you see it, but it's, sometimes it's hard to tell. And so a wetland doesn't always look wet sometimes it's seasonal wet sometimes it's it's dry sometimes it's wet later um, those types of things but they're so important to make sure that um, they can filter water so they actually help with pollution preventing that pollution from reaching our our lakes and our rivers um, flood reduction they again slow down the water so that we don't have huge floods that hurt you know people's businesses and houses um, fish and wildlife habitat juvenile ha- sat Juvenile salmon um, have to um, grow up in a lot of your wetlands, and so they'll come and find protection in those areas before spawn- before heading back out to sea. Um, and groundwater recharge, so making sure that we have um, abundant well water for all of us who live and rely on this area.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, uh, several different classifications of wetlands in the area, uh, swamps, bogs, peatlands. Um, what are the differences between some of those and how uh, how are they uh, how are they effective for us? what?
2: Yeah, and so we do have any kind of incredibly variety, and you look at up further north at with tundra, um and so just different. I guess classifications are the best way to say it, you know, when you look at peatlands, they're also incredible carbon sinks where you're storing incredible amounts of carbon because it's old vegetation that's died and just stayed there. And so that carbon is just staying on the ground instead of being released in the sky. So it's an incredible carbon sink. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, incredible for holding all that moisture and really protecting our land.
1: And kind of akin to like uh, prairie grass in the Great Plains, uh, the root system, the the depth of the system is much, uh, much larger than you imagine looking at the surface, that it's uh, way more uh, vegetable matter uh, in the area than, uh, uh, just what you can actually see. So, um, like you said, a carbon sink and, uh, important to keep that sequestered. Yes.
2: Yes. And it's amazing to, you walk across and you don't even realize it. And the same, as you said, with the grasslands in the Midwest, and it's just amazing sometimes when you look closer at these systems, how incredibly complex they are.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as uh, runoff, uh, let's go back to the uh, whether you know it's a wetland or not. Um, so the state has, um, is it the state or is it the uh, federal government that has the, the classifications that tells you whether an area is considered a wetland or not?
2: Um, so I, <laughs> I'm going to give you a lawyer answer, and I apologize in advance. We often say it depends. Um, so in terms of protections, um, there's some complex answers to that, and so... When we talk about legal protections for wetlands, it depends on those definitions of what we've de- declared protected. And so um, under the Clean Water Act, and I'm going to try not to get into legal weeds here because I know nobody likes that, um, there's a significant nexus connection. And so when the Clean Water Act protects our wetlands, it's because there's a significant nexus to our navigable waterways. <laughs> That's not the ecological definition, which is you know a different criteria for where wetlands are. So it'd be a different mapping system. I'm sorry, that's a little yeah, weedy. Yeah, no, all, all good.
1: <laughs> um, no, I know I've seen some plat maps that have, uh, uh, disc- like you know, zones, like you can't can't develop this section of your property because this is considered a federally protected wetland. And uh, if you wish to do anything in this area, it will require uh, considerable inspection and permitting before, uh, before you can proceed. Um, uh, and... I, you know, the My property, sorry, I'm lost for words here. Uh, my, my property is about 90% wetlands, uh, so I get to uh, experience that daily. And uh, there are sections of it where you can walk across it, like you said. You don't know that it's a wetland because it seems like it's high and dry. Uh, but at certain times of the year, though the water either goes across the surface or it comes up from underneath and uh um that's an interesting process to watch uh hugely important for uh keeping the water in the streams um and like you said also a cleaning process to keep any pollutants from getting there um so the, uh, the programs in place for protection right now, we have the Clean Water, uh, Clean Water Act with the EPA, which is our primary tool for making sure that these uh, uh, areas of wetlands do not get disturbed, uh, disrupted to the point where they're no longer effective. Um, how does the Clean Water Act, uh, how does that do that? How does somebody uh, find out if an area is protected? What do they do to protect an area that is maybe under threat?
2: And so um, the Clean Water Act is, you know, kind of an amazing law that's been around, it's actually 50 years this year, Um, and so it has an important section in it, which is called Section 404, and I'm going to stay out of those weeds, Um, but it protects not just wetlands, but waters of the U.S., so streams and rivers, and it prevents people from, you know, going and blocking a whole stream without oversight, and so you still, there's still a lot of ways, if for some reason there's a really good reason to go block that stream, there's still a path to do that. It's just making sure we're doing that in a way that considers the people who have property down, down the stream from you, or our fish that are trying to get up the stream and those types of things. Yeah. So, um, we have a pretty important law with the Clean Water Act that protects that. And right now that program is actually run by the Army Corps of Engineers, um, to do permitting on that. And I want to make it very clear, like a lot of people, um, You hear about, you know, regulatory processes and you just are like, I just want to avoid that. I don't want to deal with that at all. And I totally get that because I talk to government officials and deal with paperwork and it's a pain. Um, So I understand that. For small projects, 404 really often doesn't impact you at all. And so there's very basic um, nationwide permits that allow the, the local homeowner to be able to modify your property in ways that are, going to have minimal impacts to our waters. And Mm. that's what most of us are doing. We're going to do something that maybe put a garden in, in our wetlands or next to our wetlands, it's going to have very minimal impacts. Mm -hmm. You know, none of us want the government to like mess with my ability to put in my garden near my wetlands. Mm -hmm. So this law is actually very much directed to those big projects um, that would affect a lot of us. And so some of the really common examples we think of in Alaska are huge projects like Pebble Mine or Donlin Mine, the West who sit in a road will need such a permit. Um, Ambler Road needs such a permit.
1: I was say road development seems yeah. to be a big issue around here of uh, blocking and diverting streams and rivers. Um, uh, so, okay, so Section 404 is for, for large projects. Is there a method for individuals to be able to address that?
2: For I, people to address the large projects,
1: the large projects uh, to be become involved to say, oh, "Gosh, this doesn't seem like it's being handled correctly." Is there uh, any kind of recourse for individuals to, to be be involved?
2: Yes, and so um, again, four hundred four is is has been around a very long time and has a lot of processes. So the larger the project, kind of the more scrutiny the government gives it, and it's actually an amazing amount of scrutiny because the federal government does a whole public assessment, basically. They look into cultural impacts of the project. They look into subsistence. Is it gonna affect our salmon streams? Is it gonna affect our, you know, endangered cook Inlet beluga whale? They do it in, you know, incredibly thorough review and provide documentation so that we all know the impacts so that the public's aware. And it's not to say they don't, you know, that that's a deciding factor. They say, you know, they're not going through a checklist and saying, this impact is too much, no. They're basically providing it to all of us so that we can assess it and say, whoa, that's too much. I am not comfortable with that. And then there's a public process where we're, as citizens and as Alaskans, we can weigh in and say, I'm very concerned about these four things or I don't think you've looked close enough. Is this project going to affect our farming? Is this going to affect our tourism? Um, Is this going to affect our fishing? We have so many people here in Homer and throughout um, the peninsula that really rely on our fishing. And so our salmon populations are incredibly important.
1: Mm -hmm. So section 404 uh, is the section of the Clean Water Act that involves specifically uh, permitting for uh, filling and dredging in wetlands. Um, is, uh, do I have that correct?
2: Yes. Um, Although wetlands, it would also include lakes, streams, rivers, all kind of the normal waterways.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, and the uh, uh, the thing that we do want to touch on here this morning is the current act from the state right now to assume control. Uh, I believe the the phrase was uh, assume supremacy over Section 404. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, what do they want to do? What do they want to do with that?
2: Um, so it's actually the term is primacy, primacy which sorry. is no worries. I think it <laughs> means the same thing. Um, but the the state is basically ask, um, asking asking the state government to provide enough money to do the application to ask the federal government to run the program ourselves and so the state would be responsible for paying for the program hiring the staff training the staff and then working with anybody interested and so assessing when permits are needed and then getting you know getting the permits out when appropriate or or not you know disapproving a permit if it's going to have impacts that are not acceptable
1: so this is a free program that the federal well not free but the federal pro, federal government is paying for this program now and uh the Dunlavy administration would like to uh assume uh the cost of managing this program uh is there any uh is there anything in that section that uh can change when the state takes control or is that all of the regulations they're supposed to enforce is that consistent
2: so first just to back up right now the Army Corps of Engineers p- pays something like $7.9 million a year and has 49 um, employees that run this program just in Alaska um, to make sure that these permits are being assessed and then going out in a timely manner, which I know, you know, maybe don't come out as quick as you want, but making sure that it's being done in the best way possible to protect our lands. Um, that is N- at no cost to the state. So uh, you had indicated that the state has asked for um, $4.9 million, so about $3 million less less, um, to do the program with only 28 employees, so about 20 employees less. And so, so
1: less than half the program, less than, less than half the funding, less than half the personnel to, to do the same things. And, and just to clarify, they are expected, the state is expected to enforce the same regulations in the policy?
2: Yes, and okay. so they're expected to... Um, And again, this gets into some legal weeds, um, but to have the same minimal federal requirement standards. Um, But there are a whole bunch of changes that would still happen with state primacy. And so even though the minimum standards should be met, um, the concern would be if there's not enough personnel meeting those standards, paying for that program, and there are a number of really important things that would change on the public process because that is a... Some of a separate process with other um, federal laws that impact this. And so it's a little bit legally complicated. So some things would change.
1: Okay. Uh, this is a good time to ask this question from a listener uh, emailed in. And uh, to remind our listeners, if you'd like to join this conversation, give us a call 907 235 7721. You can also email your questions to me, josh at kbbi.org. A uh, question from a listener here why would the Dunleavy administration want to take over a program that is already federally funded and is the budget the administration requested adequate to perform these permitting functions are they going to get the job done (laughs)
2: um i i cook inlet keeper we're very concerned and um certainly we are suggesting if people have the same concerns to call their senators and suggest that this is not included in the budget um and so we don't don't unfortunately believe that it's going to be an adequate budget issue and i think we've had a number of years where all of us Alaskans have been very concerned with the budget and watching people, watching our representatives try to pass a budget because it's, we've been very strapped for funds. And so this program, which is gonna cost millions of dollars a year and likely whale more than what's already being budgeted for, meeting those minimum requirements is gonna be very hard.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, uh, is, not sure how to ask that, is, is, is there another uh, motive for the state to take over this?
2: Because um, I...
1: there, there have been other states that have assumed control. So the, what we were talking about uh, previously, there's three other states in the country that have taken over management of this Section 404. Uh, have they succeeded in uh, uh, holding up their end of the deal, uh, paying for it, and making sure that things happen, or have there been issues with any of them?
2: So Florida is the last state that did so, and they did so relatively recently, and it, so far it's been... Um, fairly concerning watching that process and mostly actually concerning for both sides, concerning for those of us that are very concerned about our wetlands and concerning for people who um, are looking to develop land and, and trying to get permits in a timely manner. And we know, again, all of us understand that that is something that is important when you're trying to run a business to get a permit in a timely manner, either yes or no to make decisions. Um, And in Florida, what people have seen is that there's huge delays because they did not provide adequate staff um, and they did not provide adequate funds. And so those delays have been significant for everybody involved, um, which means either permits get pushed through um, without adequate review or permits just sit because there's nobody to assess them and to look at them. And so it's been very concerning in Florida kind of watching that, that, that system and that change play out.
1: Very good um let's see the process for challenging uh challenging anything in section 404 with the federal government is fairly straightforward um i say fairly in a you know kind of tongue-in-cheek manner but uh is that going to change with the state is there going to be a new uh a new method Uh, let's let's back up here for a second how how likely is the state to actually succeed in taking over management of this section
2: um I guess um, that's always such a hard thing to judge for me. Um, I think what's most important right now is if you have concerns on, on any side, you should call and talk to your representatives. And so call them and say, how is this adequately funded? How is this going to work? How is this going to impact my life? And make sure that they are aware that you have concerns about this. And again, I, I think all of us, whether or not you're looking for the permit, whether or not you're worried about the stream, whether you're worried about Pebble Mine, whatever the issue is, I think it's important to ask those questions. And so um, I think there's a lot of unknown on how that would, would look.
1: So uh, with the with the change to the state, does that happen through a law that the state passes? Or is this something that has to go through the legislature and then the governor signs? Or is this something that the governor can sign an executive order for, say, and uh, say, we're going to go ahead and take, take this over now based on the rules that already exist?
2: So- it's with the rules that already exist, kind of. Again, I'm sorry, lawyer answers. Yeah. The governor, um, and actually the previous governor, Governor Purnell, um, a number of years ago now had suggest, had put forward a bill that um, allowed the state to seek out and determine whether or not they could take this program over and to do so if funds were available. And so what the governor has done now is ask for the funds. Um, and it's unclear how the governor um, assessed $4.9 as the suggested amount um, but has asked for that money in the budget to seek this. There's still a, another process that the state would have to go through asking the EPA essentially for the control of the program. Okay. So they have to go through a process where they show all of the steps they've taken to be ready to do that. And there will certainly be ways to weigh into that. Um, and so there will be other, if, if that happens, um, and again, if that money, if the $4.9 million is included in the budget the state would be taking those steps and and the public could certainly weigh in and tell the epa of any concerns they have
1: very good uh we have a caller on the line uh hi caller thanks for calling the coffee table
3: yeah good morning uh my name is steve and i have a question uh, concerning the clean water act uh if i'm i may be mistaken but i believe that cook inlet has been exempt from the clean water act since its inception is that correct
2: uh, um, so there's, so I guess there's an, an easy no. We are um, Cook Inlet is is not exempt from most of the requirements for the Clean Water Act. There is a specific exemption that allows for discharge from oil and gas platforms in Upper Cook Inlet in, in coastal waters, um, and that allows for more discharge than any other oil and gas platforms in other coastal waters in the country, but it doesn't exempt us from any of the other requirements, and there still are specific requirements for that dumping. Does that make sense?
3: Uh, yes. Yeah. So it's, it's just a limited area, looking like that remains exempt.
2: And it's only exempt from a specific requirement. So it's exempt from the zero discharge requirement, and so everywhere else we're not allowed to dump kind of produced water and oil and gas discharges. And so... Um, That is an exemption that exists, but it still has requirements for how much is allowed to be dumped and and where it's allowed to be dumped.
3: I see. uh, And you say this is the only place in the country that still allows that?
2: This is the only place in coastal waters. And so you know, that three miles close to shore and so everywhere else in coastal waters, we have a requirement for zero discharge. And so either you have to reinject, or you have to treat or you have to do something else. And Cook Inlet, and it's, this is certainly a concern that Cook Inlet Keeper has been worried about for a very long time and is still worried about, um, especially as a lot of the discharge actually has been growing and we've been seeing a lot more discharge going into our waters that we fish.
3: Yeah, I was wondering, is there any way to realize, or in actual fact, how much is being dumped?
2: Um, so, y- yes and no, in that the EPA does track how much is being dumped by our oil and gas platforms up in Upper Cook Inlet. Um, and so you can look into that. There's been some changes in what was allowed to be dumped, and actually the state um, ha- already has primacy over that program. And so the state actually runs that program now. And... Last fall, they actually expanded it out. So we actually allowed something that normally is not allowed in the Clean Water Act, which is called backsliding, which is where the state has actually allowed one of the platforms that used to not dump toxic waste into our waters is now allowed to. And so I haven't seen numbers on the amount that we're currently having happen yet, but we should be getting those fairly soon. And it's, it's a ton of, of waste that's allowed to be dumped. It's actually pretty horrifying.
1: Liz, can you tell me what that uh, what that waste consists of? You said uh, uh, produced water. Uh, is that drilling mud effectively the the waste that comes up from a, a, a well point?
2: Yeah. So you'd have um, you'd have a number of things. So you'd have the drilling fluids and the mud that would come up from the drilling process. But you'd also have when you drill for oil, you get a whole bunch of oil. You also get a whole lot of water that mixes with the oil, and it's called produced water is the technical term. And then it gets separated, and then that the oil gets taken away to be used, but there's some oil that's left in that produced water and there's other substances. There's radioactive um, materials. I'm sorry, I wasn't, it was a little bit off of 404, so I'm sorry. Um, but that all then gets dumped back into Cook Inlet.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, Steve, any other questions?
3: Uh, one more. Uh, what would it take to get that changed, to get, Cooking it the same as everywhere
2: else. That the would change
3: water act.
2: And that's a, a great question and something that we've been looking into. That would take the EPA changing the rules. And so we have been looking at whether or not it's worth you know, asking the EPA to change those rules and are very much are looking at doing that and saying people are very concerned and would like the EPA to have the same criteria for all the coastal waters, not making this exception for Cook Inlet um, and making sure that our waters are protected just like waters are protected everywhere else in the country.
3: Yeah, if we're concerned about the belugas and and everything else around here. uh, I don't see any reason why it should be exempt.
2: We completely agree. Um, Yeah, and you're welcome to call me anytime at Cook Inlet Keeper, and I'm happy to talk to you and tell you some of the options you could have to. To tell that to the epa as well and keep an eye on our website as we we often have petitions or other action alerts um, to make sure that your voice because your voice as a citizen in alaskan is important
3: well thank you uh, that addressed my
2: question
1: well thank thank you for calling steve and uh remind our listeners that if you'd like to call in your question you can do that by calling 907-235-7721 we'd be happy to take your call and uh, if you'd like to email your question, you can send that to me, josh at kvbi.org And we're happy to read that on the air for you. We're going to take a couple of minute break here and uh, regroup. And we will come back with some more discussion in a couple of minutes. This is The Coffee Table, and you're listening on KBBI Homer AM 890, live from the Gary Thomas Studio. <music> This is KPBI Homer AM 890. You're tuned in to the coffee table. I'm your host, Josh Krohn, and I'm uh, here with our guest Liz Merring from Cook Inlet Keeper, and we're talking about uh, the Clean Water Act Section 404 for permitting and filling for filling and dredging in wetlands and uh, other... Uh, things that cook and Lit, uh keeper is involved in uh, reminder that our phone lines are open if you'd like to call in your question 907-235-7721 jimmy is standing by to take your call he's very excited and uh, if uh, you'd rather send your email uh, send me an email with your question you can send that to josh at kbbi.org and we'll get that on the air Uh, so Liz, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us this morning to have this conversation. Um, uh, like we were talking about on the break, this seems like, a um, a responsive community, uh, to be involved in, uh, because we're, we're constantly surrounded by, uh, by nature. Uh, it's, it's hard to ignore. Um, it's easy to see, uh, the impacts, small impacts on what's here and, um, uh, we have uh, we have a lot of involved people, the people uh, wishing to see things either, you know, stay the change, uh, you know not not be disturbed, uh, continue to be there for future generations for uh, for our own enjoyment and pleasure and for our uh, safety, security, health. Um, lots of lots of good reasons there. Um, so let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about the uh, permitting process for the state. Um, the process let's let's say well i'm following my notes here the the process for the state to uh be able to uh uphold section 404
2: yes so um again the the process is first what the governor has done is ask the um the legislature to approve it in the budget and so he's asked for the money in there and so again it's 4.9 million um which would cover some of the costs of running the program um and so if, if that's approved, um, then the next step would be for the state to basically prove to the EPA that they can adequately run it with the budget and the staff that they would have. And they'd have to go through that process and showing the EPA that they could, could do that. Um, and as we were talking on the break, that that's a, both a, a legal and an ecological question, but also a political question. And so there's some, uh, some question of how that would work and what exactly that would entail, but that'd be another chance for people to weigh in with concerns. Um, we, again, are certainly weighing in now, asking the state, why would we spend $4.9 million of Alaska's dollars with no federal support? There's no money, federal funds available to help support this, and so why would we spend that money um, when we for a service that we basically get as the state for free right now, with the federal government running it and managing it? and having 50 years of experience doing so.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then the other uh, the other cost that we discussed on the break is the, uh, the cost of litigation challenges to this change is going to be something that will be expensive for the state. Have they provided for that?
2: And so the state has added a little bit of money into their proposed budget for litigation costs. Um, but this is a highly litigious area, um, and I am a lawyer, so I will... Say you know sometimes that's necessary. sometimes there are, are really good reasons to challenge one you know a decision that our federal government or our state government are making and if the state was to assume primacy and be running this program, they would have to be paying for those funds. So instead of having um, Department of Justice the federal branch of, of the legal arm of the federal government, I'm sorry that was not a clear sentence um, the state would be doing it. so Department of Law would be, have to be going to court and that court would happen in state court. Um, And and so, you know, that'd be an expense for the state. I also think that there's something that we as citizens should know, um, and as Alaskans should know. Alaska, um, the way the Alaska court system works is works a little differently than the federal court in that there's a loser pays law um, or rule, I guess. It's not really a law. And so if I would take, you know, as a citizen, take my government to court in the state and I was to lose... I would have to be on the hook for the state's expenses. And that's really concerning for all of us who might want to challenge these decisions that we might not agree with because sometimes we try to resolve them in a a friendly way and we can't.
1: That's kind of a a chilling uh, kind of language in there. Is that, that, that's in the state language? Uh, So once the state gets uh, primacy over the uh, Section 404, then then challengers to the state's process would be liable for... uh, uh, all expenses. In could be liable. Okay. Yeah, it
2: could be liable for, again, and so again, if you lost, and so I, we all, um, sometimes court's necessary. You have to take somebody to court to make sure that y- the lands or your business or whatever is protected, and so to do so, you could be responsible, and again, this is all fact-specific, but you could be responsible for all the state's expenses in going to court, which can be hundreds of thousands of dollars, yeah. um, and so I would be making that decision before I took them to court of whether or not It's worth that risk and whether or not i can even handle that risk and that is definitely a risk for citizens and a protection that we would no longer have because currently a citizen can take the federal government to court without that risk and so basically go and say please prove that you're right to the judge and have a neutral party decide if they're right without risking half a million dollars in expenses
1: that makes sense uh we have a caller on the line hi thanks for calling the coffee table and we lost him uh well go ahead and give us a call back we'll uh release that line and uh uh if you'd like to give us a call 907-235-7721 or you can email us josh at org. i'll read your question that way caller if uh give us a call back really quick and get back on that line we'd love to have you um Let's, uh, let's shift gears a little bit because we've got a couple other things to talk about in the remaining 15 minutes we have here. Um, so uh, one of the, the areas that uh, could be opened up for uh, further development and exploration with the change in the state permitting process is uh, the Pebble Mine, uh, which seems like the, the zombie that just won't stay down. Um, how, how, is that going to, uh, how are they going to be able to lever that to um, start that process again?
2: And so I would say this is like super again legally complicated. So Pebble Mine is in a, in in the 404 process, and and as anybody who's been following it, at least legally knows, we've been in this kind of 404 boomerang process for years now, where you know an administration kind of changes and we decide. And so there's a a process where, and it's not used very much, where the EPA can essentially veto a permit. And so that's been the process that we've been in. That stays in place. But I would say that that veto power has only been used 13 times over the last 50 years. And the 13th time is Pebble Mine and it's not even complete. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're expecting to see a proposed decision from the EPA this summer on, on the veto of this permit and why that's the determination they're making, if that's the determination that that they're making. And so there will be a comment period on that. And the state promise he doesn't change that, but it would change all the steps before that. So the Army Corps of Engineers wouldn't be involved, and there wouldn't be the... Um, environmental impact statement that we normally get in these processes that provides us so much rich information.
1: So, and the state doesn't have the agencies or the the personnel to actually even take care of those reviews, the environmental impact uh, statement or? um,
2: Well, and it wouldn't be requirement because those are a requirement for federal actions. And so we wouldn't have to do that thorough review. And so that's a, 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 you know, a National Environmental Protection Act requirement and so it's for federal actions and so the state would have to do some sort of review but it it wouldn't be that intensive review that we get where we get again so much really valuable information on the impacts of a project
1: gotcha thank you um we have a caller back on the line hi caller thanks for calling the coffee table
0: hi this is roberta and i uh, liz is probably gonna cover this but i just thought i'd give a couple things uh right now I'm getting feedback, but that's okay. Right now, the the budget is in the House, and in order to do your comments, uh, you have to get a hold of Representative Vance. But you can also send what's called a P.O.M. through the L.I.O. Legislative Information Office, and that number is two three five seven eight seven eight. And that's a public opinion message, and there is a limit on the words, but that can get sent to the full House and the full Senate, um, and that's what needs to be done in the House right now because it is in the budget is in the in in the House uh, this week. Next week they're going to be having it in uh, Friday. They're having a Senate Finance hearing at 1 p.m. and uh, this will be this will be your time that you can comment and then the other way again for the full senate is to send a pom you can always email each uh, representative and senator but that takes a little bit of work so the pom is a kind of a simple way to call in that information so i just wanted to put that out and thank liz for her great information and thank you for this program.
1: Well, thank you, Roberta, thank you for calling and thank you for that information. Yes, always a, a good good idea to know where our uh, uh, levers for uh, access uh, are locally and the uh, Legislative Information Office is a good one for us. Uh, do take advantage of the, uh, the POMs. Uh, it's a nice thing to be able to do when they're not having a current hearing on something, you can still drop your comments in and they'll we'll get them passed along to our representatives and other people that are involved in that process. Uh, so thank you, Roberta, for that info.
0: Thank you. And and actually, Senator Stevens is the other one for our area. Okay, thanks. Thank you. you.
2: And I'll just um, very briefly add, um, the other thing you can always do is call your representative if you don't want to take time to email. And we... um, have a blog out right now that will help you, like, look up your representative. You can call them, and if you don't, you don't need to be available during a public hearing. It always is helpful to do so, but you can also just call your individual senator. You can call your individual representative and make your voice heard. We also have a form on our website that, if you fill out, it emails it directly to um, your representative, so you don't even have to look them up. It would email it right to them.
1: And what's that website?
2: Um, inletkeeper.org, and it's our latest blog.
1: Great, thank you um let's uh let's shift gears here a little bit for the last 10 minutes and uh talk about some of the other things that are happening uh with cook inlet uh keeper and with uh just uh events happening in our area um i'm gonna throw the first one out here the lower cook inlet uh oil and gas lease uh is coming up uh, it hasn't it hasn't made it into the public discussion sphere just yet um
2: so, yes, and you're talking about the lease sale 258, which is the lease sale in Lower Cook Inlet. So this is the federal lease sale. Um, and so we had a public comment period in December with a draft environmental impact statement that came out in October and then ended December 13th. And actually, um, almost 93,000 people took the time to comment on this lease sale. And actually, 90, 99.98% of them were expressed concerns, concerns for our fishing and our tourism and and our, and our lands and waters, and our beluga whales, and all of the things that we who live here love it love it so much. Um, so what we're doing right now is we're waiting for the final environmental impact statement. And in that final environmental impact st- statement, we will expect to see a decision from, from the administration on whether or not they're going to be holding the lease sale. Um, and so we're tracking that very closely. We're expecting that decision in the next month. Um, Give or take, it's, you know, we never quite know when they're coming. Um, it could be as soon as um, next two weeks, but it could be a little later.
1: Very good, and we'll be in touch with you about that as soon as uh, as soon as that comes around, so we can let our uh, listeners know uh, that something's coming. Um, uh, let's see other other things happening. Uh, we have an electronics recycling event uh, coming up from uh, from Cook and Keeper.
2: Yes, and we love our electronics recycling. It is um, in Homer. It is april 30th at spenard um building supplies and you can come and drop off your recyclings that uh, electronic recycling there um and we'll be sorting it and sending it off so that it's being recycled and being reused instead of just ending up in our landfill and buried with especially with valuable um minerals inside of it which we would have to mine for otherwise
1: yeah uh, how, how did this start Cause this isn't the first year we've uh you've done an electronics recycling event
2: it is not the first year, although I have to say I only started cooking Cook and Lake Keeper in July, and so Satchel would be the way better person to, to talk about that. But we've done it several years, and we have events happening in Soldotna, actually the same day. Um, also, we'll be going across to um, for the communities across the bay and picking up electronic recycling in, I think, the second week of May in Port Graham, Nanwallack, and Seldovia. So pretty much the entire Kenai Peninsula there's someplace you can drop off your electronic recycling and we will try to you know well, we'll we will get it to the places where it can be reused instead of just again sitting on our landfills and mm-hmm. this is part of our commitment to our community to try to make Cook Inlet a place where it's sustainable for the long term
1: yeah uh, and KVPI was able to take advantage of that last year big time we had a great spring cleaning and cleared out all of the uh uh, many decades of uh, electronic accumulation that uh, re- only a radio station can really acquire. Um, uh, so thank you to Cook and Lit Keeper for uh, giving us that opportunity to uh, offload that in a responsible manner. Uh, appreciate that because, boy, what a mess that would have left behind. Um, let's see, we've got a couple other things coming up. You have a, uh, uh, an event out at Land's End uh, that you're going to be involved in.
2: Yes, so Alaska Wildlife Alliance, along with US Fish and Wildlife Service is hosting a um, marine mammal event here in Homer, um, April 18th, 19th and 20th. So it's gonna be three evenings. There's some events happening at the Fish and Wildlife building and then tabling at Land's End those evenings. And we will be, Cook and People will be tabling at those and providing some more information on many of the things um, that we're concerned about for our waters and particularly for our marine mammals and our whales. Um, There's also, I think, AWA is doing a Marine Mammal Trivia Night, and you can find more information on this event at Alaska Wildlife Alliance's website, Um, and it should be a really fun event, and it's nice to see people in person after not being able to for so long with COVID.
1: For sure. So an opportunity to go out and meet the folks for Cook and Lake Keeper, get a little bit of information about uh, the marine mammals in the Bay, and uh, uh, anything else there?
2: and experience
4: trivia if you want well
1: there we go <laughs> uh we have another caller on the line hi caller thanks for calling the coffee table
4: good morning josh liz so i have a question about the uh, jurisdiction on federal lands being that the uh, state of alaska has lots of federal lands and if this goes through will epa lose any uh, oversight on federal lands
2: So that's another complicated question. Um, EPA would, or whoever owns the federal lands. And so, you know, BLM owns a lot of our federal lands in the state, um, and so they would still have some responsibility as owners of lands. It's just where they would be, you know, who they'd be involved in. And so there'd still have to be maybe a a right-of-way, so if there was a road across BLM land, there'd still be a road permit and those sorts of things. But it it does become... a bit of a complicated legal process of where people are going for permits and those types of things.
4: And DEC, if they take primacy, would not require environmental impact statement, as I understand that.
2: No, that is true. So an environmental impact statement is a requirement under NEPA, and that requirement is for major federal actions. And if you don't, if the state is running 404, it's not a major federal action, and so there would not be the same environmental impact statement that we are used to seeing for these really big projects like Pebble Mine or Donlin Mine.
4: And I see one of the reasons that state would like primacy is state-run program is accountable to Alaskans and the legislature, and that scares me right here because then it turns into a political thing. So it would change with different administrations.
1: Well, lack and, uh, of consistency. makes it concerning for sure
4: 4.9 million out of unrestricted general funds dec has a hard time getting funding for their existing programs and that seems like a uh, a real problem to fund uh, that many employees of the state to run an efficient program on this when you look at uh, what the federal government does spend on it so lots of issues here Yes, we and completely agree. And I want end that the wastewater treatment plant out of Anchorage does have an exemption, if that, that is, in fact, one of the biggest exemptions in Cook so
2: There are so many Clean Thanks. Water Act issues we could talk about. That is another huge issue we're worried about. And if you are also worried about our our poop joke issue, which we have so many poop jokes we make with it, please call us. Um, we can make poop jokes and talk about a sewage issue in Anchorage. <laughs>
4: thanks
1: a lot for the program hey thanks for calling uh, we are just about out of time but before we uh, uh let liz go um liz i'll give you one more uh chance to to kind of wrap things up uh, cover anything that we may have missed in the uh, last uh last hour of discussion
2: i think um that last caller really summed up the concerns really well which is if you're concerned about this please call your your representatives or email them or go to our website and again that's inletkeeper.org look at our latest blog we have a form that you can fill out to make it easy um but you know make your voice heard it's so important and we as citizens in alaska have a lot of power we can call our representatives and get an answer and talk to a real person and so it's really important
1: uh now how do people get involved with cook inlet keeper
2: Um, You can email us, you can call us, you can walk into our office. We are still requiring masks, um, but please come in and see us. Um, We have some volunteer opportunities coming up this summer for different programs. Um, We have the Homer Drawdown project that we run with KBCS. Um, And so there's a a number of programs that you can get involved in. And some of these like climate change solutions on the community level are really um, both fun ways to be involved and ways to really make a difference in our community.
1: Great um gosh i think that's uh that's pretty much it for now so uh liz Merring from cook inlet keeper thank you so much for joining us this morning on the coffee table um uh liz do you have any uh, contact info you'd like to share or just uh, go to the cook inlet uh, keeper website
2: you can always email me at liz at inletkeeper.org or um, 235-3459 and thank you so much for having this conversation and inviting me here this morning to talk about this issue
1: well, much, much appreciated. This is... KBBI Homer AM 890. You've been listening to The Coffee Table. I'm your host, Josh Krohn. I've been speaking with Liz Maring, who is the uh, executive for Cook Inlet Keeper. Not executive. Go ahead, correct me.
2: I'm the advocacy director Ad- at Inlet Keeper. <laughs> thank you very much. I,
1: I'll, I'll give you whatever title just <laughs> pops off the top of my head sometimes. Well, Liz, thank you for joining us. Thanks for sharing all of this information. Uh, very appreciated. And uh, uh, for our listeners interested in being involved, uh, go to uh, inletkeeper.org and uh, see what you can find find. Liz, thank you so much, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. This is KBBI Homer AM 890. It is 9.59. Stay tuned for Line 1, the Health Connection, coming up next from Alaska Public Media. Today, for weather from the western Kenai Peninsula, partly cloudy, isolated snow showers and isolated rain showers this afternoon, highs in the upper 30s. To mid 40s, variable wind to 10 miles per hour, and around Catchmack Bay, southeast wind, 15 miles per hour. Tonight, partly cloudy this evening and becoming mostly cloudy. Scattered snow showers, lows in the mid 20s to the lower 30s with light winds. Around Catchmack Bay, east wind, 15 miles per hour. In the evening, becoming light. This is KVBI. Have a great morning.